Well, good afternoon or good evening, depending where you are uh, today. Um, we're delighted to welcome you to the launch of fantastic new book by Joe Boot, uh, Ruler of Kings. Um, Joe is Reverend Dr. Joe Boot is the founder of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, and he's joining us live today from Canada um, to talk about this book. And uh, we're also joined by Andrea Williams, Chief Executive of Christian Concern, and also um, the author of the foreword to the book. Uh, nice to see you guys. Welcome. Joe, congratulations on getting this book out and, and writing it. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it and learned a lot from it, found it really interesting and uh, looking forward to this conversation about it. And if you're watching live today on YouTube or Facebook and you put your comments in there we, and you want to ask a question, just ask the question um, in the comment section there and we can see it and we'll try and get these questions through to Joe. Um, but Joe, why don't we just kick off, first of all, with a very general question. Why did you write this book? What motivated you to, to write it? Well, first, thanks for having me, Tim. And uh, thank you to Christian Concern and Wilberforce Publications for, for publishing uh, this book. And um, I'm, uh, I'm excited about the reception it's getting so far in just these first few weeks and looking forward to what, uh, what may happen in the days ahead in terms of its influence. Uh, Ruler of Kings is basically um, an, an apologetics, a cultural apologetics work uh, that is trying to identify and then to delineate and then defend essentially a, a Christian view of government and uh, what that means for societal structures today. And so uh, I do that, I try and do that in the book in, in the broader context of a sort of historical backdrop uh, that highlights the reality of a conflict that's gone on and is going to continue throughout all of human history between the kingdom of God and the Jesus Christ and the dream of man building his own kingdom in, in, in an idea with this admission of God, actually, eventually, a, a, the idea of a universal kingdom as a kind of monument to himself. And um, so I look at essentially these two societal programs that are um, undertaken in terms of two different views of authority that we have in, in, uh, in the world, it's the authority of Christ or the authority ultimately yeah. of man and his ideas. So we have the, the Christian uh, kingdom calling which is thetical that is it's in terms of god's order and god's word and then we have rebel man and his anti-thetical work which is trying to overthrow god's order in terms of his own idea and yeah. so i really try and describe this battle this conflict that's been running throughout human history since the time of the tower of babel and then identify what a christian view of government should be and then how we go about uh, yeah. thinking about that in terms of today's societal structures. Yeah. And um, Andrea, um, just tell us a bit about what excites you about the book. So you wrote the forward to it, if you could, Andrea. Well, I mean, I just, I think it's, I think it's so brave just confronting uh, what's behind um, government generally, how, how a society is oriented either towards God or not. I've just returned from a trip to Nepal, and I think this is quite a good way to contextualize uh, mm -hmm. the, what, Joe, what Joe has written. Um, COVID and the rules around COVID have been universal across the globe. So I arrive in Nepal and people are wearing masks. I have to take tests and so on and so forth. 
Um, and yet the reality also of arriving in, in Nepal is that you see there a society that, which is very dominated by a Hindu mindset, by a caste mindset, uh, yeah. and, you know, and there's a sense in which the government there um, is controlled by a strong elite that yeah. make that there's there's there is it's true a struggle there in terms of a new constitution has come in which mirrors the european convention on human rights but there we see the conflict we see the interest of the west coming in there with Planned parenthood wanting to put uh, abortion clinics in its midst and also blue diamond which is an lgbtq um, yeah. group that's coming in there so you see a very Hindu-dominated society, you see in front of you also an outworking of that, which is a lot of chaos, sadly. Yeah. Uh, you see a lot of poverty uh, and so on. So you see there very clearly a country that's oriented, that has historically been oriented, oriented towards Hinduism. Yeah. On the way there, I arrived in the airport of Doha and yeah. was greeted with, uh, across the Tannoy, um, with this, it's Ramadan, it's the holy month of Ramadan, we are not to eat in public, eat or drink in public. And right. then you see signs in a very modern airport for men's prayer, a, a, a men's prayer room, so clear segregation of women. Yes. And we come from the West. So I think Joe's, you know, who rules the kings? At the end of the day, you know, we, we, we know who is the ruler of all kings, and it's Jesus. But yes. what's fascinating here is to just travel across these countries uh, yeah. where you see the outworking of the outworking of ideologies within the midst of each country. And I think um, Joe, Joe's, book really, Joe, Joe's book really looks look, looks at it, look, yeah. looks, looks at this. But what's interesting yeah. Joe, about all of these, and you unpack this a bit in your book, is this COVID, uh, is the COVID mindset, which actually goes across all across goes across all three of those worldviews from west to from the west to islam and to hinduism yeah yeah so joe do you want to comment on that yeah the the basically i mean what i'm what i identify in in the book as it relates to that in in this this theoretical and antithetical way of looking at things you either christ his kingdom and his lordship is that the only alternative is man building his own kingdom and that being under an, another principle of authority which the favored uh, form of authority and indeed the favorite form of idolatry for man throughout history throughout the history of civilization has been statism the state and uh this is essentially where the state arrogates to itself uh the role and indeed sometimes the very characteristics of god sovereignty, infallibility, uh, and uh, tries to become totalizing. And uh, what we've seen in the West, uh, Andrea mentions these, these COVID measures that have been, been global. But what we've seen is the um, increased emergence, actually, of the to a totalitarian view of government, of, of political life, uh, even in the, the shock has been that even in the Western uh, world. Um, and when we hear that word totalitarian, we tend to think of, you know, Mussolini, uh, Adolf yeah. Hitler. We yeah. think of 20th century total authoritarian figures who were involved in um, totalitarian politics, Stalin and others. Um, but actually, totalitarianism is a, 
a much more mundane idea. Mm. Uh, it essentially means that all of society, the various aspects of society, the family, the church, yeah. uh, the business enterprise, medicine, the economy, and so forth, are treated and regarded in a parts-to-whole relationship with the state. So the state is seen as the ultimate integrating concept. Yes. And therefore, if if the family and if medicine and if uh, the, the business and if health, public health, is seen as purely a department of state, yes. uh, then it's treated in a parts to whole fashion. And the integrating concept where total authority lies then is with the state itself. And in that situation, you can have an environment where the church uh, will be unilaterally uh, shut down indefinitely by the state that will regard it as yeah. less than so, so, um, service. So Joe, what you're touching on here is, I think, sphere sovereignty, which is quite important concept in the book. And and if I'm saying it right, it's kind of like the, the situation we have is people believe that the state confers rights onto people like your right to meet the church, maybe, or your right to have a family or whatever. And the Christian view of that is quite different, isn't it? Uh, so why don't mm. you just outline the the sphere sovereignty view, because I think, you know, so many Christians have got this wrong. And I think you're correcting a lot of thinking of Christians in this book here. So why don't you just outline sphere sovereignty a bit for us to explain that? Because I think many people sure. listening might not know about that. Well, sim simply put, and the expression sphere sovereignty was probably first used in this way by Abraham Kuyper. But the principle is as old as biblical revelation. Uh, it, it ultimately means the absolute sovereignty of God, first of all, over all things. Mm. And then it recognizes that in creation uh, and in human social relationships, God established, has established different spheres, different areas, jurisdictions of authority yeah. that are touching, um, but they sh cannot swallow one another. They are there to be governed in terms of their own intrinsic law. So, uh, for example, you can't if let's take the, the stick with this illustration of the state. Um, if the the state is treated or regarded in terms of the law of the family, hmm. uh, you have you would have a mafia because blood is more important than the rule of law. Um, if the state were to act in terms of the rule of the life of the church, you would have an ecclesiocracy where right. the church yeah. Uh, governments, you know, bishops yeah. and, and clergy are actually ruling the state. Um, put the shoe on the other foot. If we say that the, the, the state, we were to run the family like the state or the church as uh, uh, like the state, you would be conflating and confusion, confusing law spheres. I mean, I don't treat my children as though I'm a civil, ma they're civil magistrate. And in the pastoral office, we don't treat members of the congregation as though yeah. we are their uh, uh, magistrates. So yeah. these are different forms of government. So sphere sovereignty presupposes the idea that God is the absolute sovereign yeah. and he has delegated various offices in uh, human society, parents in families, for example, yeah. uh, elders, pastors, presbyters, bishops in churches, for example, magistrates in the state. And these are all answerable to God in their own sphere. Yeah. Uh, and they're governed in terms of God's specific law for those areas. And we see this separation in the Bible. So we see a set distinction of a separation of the jurisdiction and, and uh, authority of the priest and the king. Yes. And attempts to conflate those or confuse them mm. or for the king, for example, mm. to override that and presume to function as priests uh, yeah. is 
uh, strongly condemned. So in a so, sense, the separation of church and state is a, a simple outworking of sphere sovereignty, isn't it? Saying these are two different spheres. And it's also quite a distinctive Christian idea, isn't it? That religion and, and state are kind of separate. They're both under God, right? But they're not, they're not the same. They're not to be identified in the same way. It's like, you know, you have an Islamic state over there and a Hindu state over there. And, and Andrea's sort of given some examples of that. But the Christian way is that you have the state and the church and the, and the one they, they talk to each other, but they don't exactly they don't conflate into one. So you have a religious state. That's not the way it should be. Precisely. And you've actually hit on the keynote there, which is that actually it was only with the birth of the church and the freedom of the church being established in the West that we that the the Anglosphere in particular, but the West in general, broke from the pagan view of uh, human society, which you see in Plato and Aristotle. Uh, these are utopian and totalitarian um, yeah. uh, views of human society. Yeah. in which everything is, a, uh, and the family even, is really just a department of state. The state will tell you when and how many children you shall have, these kinds of things. That, that was actually believed by the, by the, uh, the Greek philosophers. Yeah. Um, there was an attempt with the Holy They're Roman Empire... Trying to put it into practice more recently as well, of course. Yes, you know? exactly. Yeah. Now, there was an attempt with the Holy Roman Empire to, uh, to sort of synthesize the pagan and the Christian view, and that led to some of the medieval confusion uh that uh that, that dominated for for centuries yeah. um the, the the church began to see the state in pagan terms as the ultimate integrating idea for mm. for human society and mm. so the key thing was for the church to control the state the church was a supernatural institution of grace and the state was seen as a natural institution right. and um the church needed to in a certain sense sprinkle its sort of um uh I don't want to be irreverent, but a sort of pixie dust of grace all over the state and control it. And yeah. of course, the state in turn tried to control the church. So you had that kind of conflict. But yeah. the scriptural ideal, as you've identified, the unique contribution of Christian thought is that the kingdom of God is the only totalizing concept. It's the only totalizing reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. Yeah. Uh, he is king and his law then is above even kings and uh, presidents and so forth. Yeah. And uh, because of that, we, we yeah. have a differentiated society that doesn't allow total power to accrue to any um, societal structure or any human institution because total power and sovereignty belongs to Christ alone. And so this was a unique contribution of the Christian faith to political thought. And it led to this differentiating mm -hmm. of different areas of life. Mm -hmm. Go back as far as the Justinian Code, when you begin to see uh, biblical principles, biblical law being introduced into, the, into Roman law that protected the family, for example. Right. And the family being treated as then as an independent structure and institution. And yeah. so... Uh, this has been one of the blessings that especially has accrued in in the in in the anglosphere this recognition of these of sphere sovereignty of these spheres of authority we've not always got it right in how we've fleshed it out no. um but i do think that's right that here is the difference between a pagan view which you still see reflected in islam which has yeah. a totalitarian concept of society yeah. you see it in the marxist atheistic worldviews which have yes. a totalitarian concept of society the yes. only place you don't see that totalitarian view of society is in a Christian law yes. order. Yes. 
I was struck, you know, recently because I saw Jordan Peterson uh, talked about Jesus saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. And said that's like some of the most incredible words in the whole of history. I can't what word phrase he used, but, you know, there's something right about that, isn't it? It is kind of incredible because it's it's revolutionary in a, in a non-revolutionary way kind of thing, isn't it? You know, it's like, you know, actually this is, you know, it's never been done before that you separate religion and state. And then it, it was done in Israel and it was, and the Christians took that from Jesus and from the Old, Old Testament model and separated it. And it's the best way, like you say, that's the way that creates the most freedom. Yeah, I mean, strictly speaking, um, you don't separate religion and state, but what you're yeah. separating is the institution, yes. the institutional life of the church or the synagogue or whatever it may be from the life of the state. So you don't have a, a Jesus wasn't calling there, of course, for the creation of a secular state. I know you know that, Tim, but for the sake of our listeners, yeah. um, but he was saying that ultimately the the uh, the individual has to yeah. give to God the things that belong to God and yeah. to the 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 state, the civic authority, the things that belong to the the, the realm of the civil authority. It's, yeah. a, it, it's of course, that that was at a time when um, there were some outlandish claims, of course, being made by the Roman imperial authority for itself. And yeah. the early church's refusal to say Caesar is Lord but that only Christ was Lord. Uh, the, refusal, the refusal to put incense on the altar to Caesar uh, was what began yeah. this journey of the establishment of freedom, the basic principle, the root of which is in the lordship of Jesus Christ. That was the first fundamental principle of freedom seen yeah. uh, to emerge in the, in the Western world. Yeah, amazing. So, and what, what you're, you know, obviously we're moving into a more pagan society and a more pagan way of thinking and sadly christians because we're infected by the worldview around us are, are getting a lot of this thinking as well but you know one of the chapters the, the myth of the secular neutral state yes something that you know and this is kind of the the western the european convention of human rights has been mirrored i know i'm talking about nepal it's because i've just returned but it's being mirrored in the new constitution of nepal um mm. of course mm. it's it, you still got the whole uh, hindu backdrop but that's what's being mirrored there. And this idea, which is that, which is being picked up by a lot of the governors there, which says that we, we want to offer a secular neutral state as if, as if that is neutral. I mean, we see that that um, in Great Britain and, and across the West, that it not, becomes not neutral at all. Well, well, I mean, you know, if you want to get into um, Joe's most provocative chapter then, Andrea, you know, the, the chapter where he really digs at this is the one where he says authority, sovereignty, and the heresy of liberal democracy. <laughs> well, Joe, so and the, the point you're really getting there is that there's no neutrality, isn't it? That's the real point of that chapter, but maybe you'd like to explain to people. I think that's the could... point I was trying to make at the very beginning, just crossing, yeah. just cr across crossing the world uh, in the yeah. past week. There was no neutrality. I go yeah. from supposedly a sort of, well, yeah. you know, I don't want to really call Britain this, but a post-Christian secular state that wants to eliminate god um yeah. and uh you know have all the have various white rights compete in the public yeah. space to islam across to islam yeah. across to hinduism uh, but but in all of those cultures this idea that somehow the the, the liberal modern state is free well, that's the thing that people believe that liberal democracy is is neutral uh, joe why don't you expand on that why is liberal democracy a heresy, as you say. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, one of the shocking things that I try and point out in Ruler of Kings is that society uh, in the West 
uh, is not democratic. Um, and by that, what I mean is that uh, we cannot, the, the kind of sort of default position of statism has so gotten into our veins that we conflate and confuse the way that we install civil government with the nature of society itself. So the way in which we install uh, a government in the West is through a, usually, a, a fair democratic process. Yeah. We elect yeah. our government officials to represent us. That's the basic idea of it. But yeah. um, society is more than the state. It's more than civil authority. Society constitutes our vocations, um, the, the families, uh, families in our society, churches, uh, all kinds of uh, clubs, institutions, and so on and so forth. And, sure. um, you know, our workplaces are not democracies. Uh, no. My family isn't a democracy. The church isn't a democracy. Yes. So it's a misnomer to describe society as democratic. Okay. Um, and so that's part of this, this, uh, th this myth that I'm getting at. But fundamentally, what I'm talking about with liberal the idea of the liberal democracy being heresy is first this, uh, the, the, the word liberal um, has come to mean, and I deal with the complex history of the term in the book, but fundamentally it's come to mean uh, of an ideological view of the human person and of human society that uh, we are essentially sort of rational, free, totally free, totally rational, autonomous individuals who have to um, contract together to create human society. Um, and that contract uh, can be updated as the needs of the time uh, change. Um, of course, democracy itself, the word, so th that's liberal. Democracy, demos kratos, just means people power. Yeah. And from a Christian point of view, the voice of the people, vox populi, vox dei, is not the voice yeah. of God. So the whole sort of French revolutionary idea of an egalitarian, equalitarian democracy um, yeah. is not a Christian conception. And that's why it was viewed with abhorrence here uh, in, in, in Britain and, uh, uh, and later, of course, in, in Canada. Those, those, that revolutionary notion that yeah. you can just start all over again with these abstract, f totally free, rational individuals is not a biblical idea. From a biblical standpoint, we're not wholly free. We're actually bound up in sin and rebellion against God. Mm. Um, we're not wholly rational either. That's reductionistic about the human person. And in fact, our thinking, our human understanding has been affected by the problem of sin. Yeah. We can't ever start all over again in human society because we are all no. children of parents who had parents who had parents. And we're born into a particular social order in a society. We have inherited customs and traditions yeah. and so on and so forth. So... This whole sort of um, emergence of the idea of a secular, liberal, neutral state that can eschew any form of um, metaphysical religious commitment is both impossible and a myth. And um, and based on beliefs, it's kind of a, this is a key point for me, um, Joe, that you articulate that liberal democracy is a worldview and it's based on certain beliefs about human nature That's that are actually anti-Christian or unchristian beliefs that believe that reason can attain a kind of infallibility effectively yes. about what's can right. What again, true. what I was struck by, I know I'm coming in on this whole report thing this, <laughs> on this launch. 
Yeah. If you are in Nepal as someone from the West and, and you see a society steeped in Hinduism, you say, this is innately discriminatory. Yeah. You, the caste system, uh, you see the worship of multiple gods, yeah. cows in the middle of the roads, people revering cows, monkeys, dogs. The whole thing is going on. Um, yeah. Incense, noise. And to the Western mind, that might well seem... Uh, all of a sudden, but how can how can this group of people believe this? Yes, and it's so discriminatory. It is. They actually worship rats, and and like yes. you know, then they, they they struggle with famine and they worship rats. It's kind of like it's so obviously wrong, you know. But they were they're beautiful people, a glorious people, just like you and me. Yeah, and lost in the deception of a false religion. Mm. But I thought, well, what about the West? Yes. We're dealing with, we believe that six-year-old biological boys are actually girls. And our education system, if they yeah. say they are. That's and I, and, Yeah. And that is equally. Yes. That is, that is an equal deception. Yes. Um, and we are playing that, we're playing that out and we're playing that out with our children. And so, um, and that is, you know, that, that, that is where this kind of, but that's liberal, that's ideological, yes, yeah, that's supposedly yeah. rational, that's supposedly democratic. Yes. That's supposedly, that's supposedly modern. Yes. Um, and the, and for me, in Nepal for a week, I thought there is so much, the, the society that, is so broken in, in many ways when you saw the poverty in there working all of that um how to fix but similarly um i reflected back on the west and i thought well the deception is just as great here mm -hmm. it just looks it just different. um looks different yeah. and looks more civilized yeah, so what, 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 how does what the book would... answer that you know how does the book answer that well it, it says well that... i was going to ask you what you know Having criticised liberal democracy, right, which a lot of people think is the answer or the best answer we've got, what what is your answer, Joe? What's the ideal state solution political government system that you would have? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first of all, um, let me uh, come to that by by responding in, in part to uh, what Andrea has also just said. Yeah. Um, the the, the challenge we've got now in the West uh, is that we have actually moved away from our Christian inheritance. Yeah. And the uh, the way in which um, the the society and the law structure built up, Andrea was just talking about, you know, there's, there's no um, sense of uh, equality. You've got the caste system. You've got yeah. uh, idolatry and so on and so forth going on that invades and then affects all of the culture. So you see how these ideologies reflect themselves in the social order of, of the society. Now, the way it worked in, in, in the West historically is we, we talk about the common law tradition. Right. And the common law tradition uh, is actually rooted. The first codification of English law begins with actually Alfred the Great, the only king in uh, Britain ever, ever to be called great. And it begins with the Ten Commandments because there was a reception of God's law and a recognition of God's authority. So it begins with the Ten Commandments, various passages from the epistles of Paul and the book of Acts. And then 
what happens is then the courts develop in, I mean, England had become essentially a nation by the 10th century. You had a free church in England by the 7th, 8th century. And uh, we've got the shires and the courts of 100 and 1,000 and so forth, actually based on the Jethro model given to Moses in the in Exodus right. uh, 18 yeah. and so on, 17, 18, 19, that, that, that area. And um, the common law tradition essentially is empirical. So what it does is it looks at uh, you've got the you've got the standing law that God gives to us. And then the, then you deal with just as we see in the older covenant cases, the, the various cases are yeah. then brought in terms of the standing law and case by case, a tradition builds up as the meaning of God's law is applied. So the English philosopher Roger Scruton would say that the, the judge in the common law tradition no more invents the law than the um, causist invents moral law. What happens yeah. is there's a process of discovery of the meaning. It's uncovered. The meaning of God's word is... His and they Lord. even said that Christianity is part of the law, didn't they? And, and you know, not, not many centuries ago, Christianity was regarded by judges. They'd say in a, in a court ruling, Christianity is part of the law. Not even, I mean, Lord Denning. Lord Denning Absolutely. was saying that in the middle of the last, of the last century, which, you know, is yeah. a, a long way off from Lord Justice Laws in our... In, uh, just you know, thirty years later, yeah. saying that um, the biblical law is no more applicable today than um, that uh, it was in Babylon, something like that. You know, so that's that's, that's interesting because Nebuchadnezzar got converted and did actually start to institute uh, uh, Christian law, biblical law. Uh, but um, uh, but the reality is, any any historian, any jurist worth their salt knows that the, the the Ten Commandments used to hang on the crown courts, on the walls of our crown courts. That because the law was common, everybody knew it, and it built up by built up by precedent. So yeah. the English Anglosphere, the English speaking tradition, has always been suspicious, Andrea, of abstract law codes where they, you begin with a humanistic abstract principle, and then from that abstract principle, start trying to deduce rights, which is what we've seen now. You refer to all of this LGBTQ stuff uh, that is invading everywhere, even the poor, is based on abstract ideas yeah. that, are that, that are developed by elites, and then yeah. judges are expected to then implement, in terms of their idea, yeah. those uh, they're supposed to deduce from those abstract ideas various yeah. principles whereas the freedoms I and mean, tim asked the question about what's the ideal structure well first of all any social order is a law order yeah. and through legal precedent we developed a law order in britain that means we don't, don't actually have a written constitution we never needed one uh because yeah the, the reality of the law order the christian law order built up century after century after century to yeah. bring us to the freedoms and the liberties that we had today have today rooted um in the word of god and so the ideal yeah. uh, tim in, in a more direct response is this yeah. it, this what government should look like is a uh, the state needs to recognize as witness the coronation oath of queen elizabeth ii which goes all the way back to the coronation of king solomon uh the authority of the lord jesus christ explicitly and his yeah. and his word in our society yeah. It means a recognition of a differentiation and separation of powers and jurisdictions in the life yeah. of the nation. And yeah. it means a recognition in our public prayers, in our yeah. anthems, in our positivizing of law in society, the authority of God yeah. and his word. It does not it mean the imposition of 
a Baptist tradition or a Presbyterian tradition or an Anglican tradition or a yeah. Catholic tradition on the culture, but yeah. it means a recognition of God's word and Christ as sovereign. And yes. by having recognizing the principle of sphere sovereignty, that prevents the notion of a coercion of people uh, in this area. Yeah. So, and just, you know, it is striking who we are on the 70th anniversary of the Queen's accession to the throne. And what the um, the coronation, the coronation um, service did say, you know, the Queen was presented with a Bible and it says, this is the most valuable thing. You know, you've got all the symbols of empire, all the crown jewels, all that. Yeah. The most valuable thing in the world, it said in the coronation service, is royal the, the Bible, yeah. which is the very word of God. You know, and, and she promises to uphold the laws of that. And yeah, which shows the very strong Christian tradition there. But do you think the other thing I was thinking, Joe, is the the kind of English, the way that you're describing their common law is a kind of an assumption that you're free to do what you like unless the law specifically says no. Whereas in European law, it's kind of the other way around, isn't it? That's it's right. kind of like you're not allowed to do anything unless the law says you can do it, which has got to be surely a less Christian. Is that because the Reformation affected us more that we think about it that way, or? or um, is it a more Christian way? You're saying it is, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. The, um, the the way in which this this emerged is, of course, is a very interesting story, and I don't want to bore people with a, some sort of history survey. But um, you know, we had the effectively the emergence of uh, Parliament in England. It begins with the Wittons of of Alfred, and uh, of course with the Norman invasion in the 11th century. Although a feudal system then gets imposed on England. Uh, you do have a rec an ongoing recognition of the importance of these regional courts, and then Parliament is uh, essentially established, secured, if you will. And then in 1215, you've got the, the barons with Magna Carta, you've got the barons pushing back on King John and reminding him, no, uh, there is an authority, there is a law above the law and, uh, and above every king, every human authority, and the the king must be the, the the or the you know whoever's in charge has to be kept in check by the reality of the law, yeah. and the rest of our life is freedom unless it's there unless it's emerged in terms of case law in terms of uh, yeah. uh, the the traditions and customs of our society we are a free people that's why G K Chesterton once put it beautifully when he said you live by the ten commandments or the ten thousand commandments which is it yeah. going to be. And that's the that's why uh, most of God's law is framed negatively. You shall yeah. not. You shall not. You shall yeah. not. Uh, yes. be because then it's actually viable and workable in a in in a human society. But a lot of this other positive law, modern state law, yes, seeks to regulate and encompass almost every area of people's lives. And if something is discovered that's not regulated, they want to quickly make a law about it. Yes. Uh, and so. The whole idea that emerged with the the impact of the of what was later, of course, the, the the Reformation, and then the Puritan Revolution was, of course, critical in this uh, in the seventeenth uh, century, and then, of course, in sixteen eighty nine, you had the the Bill of Rights, which yes. is essentially a reaffirmation again of our freedoms under God, yes. um, which were reaffirmed, actually, interestingly enough, essentially at the American Revolution. It was very much a restatement for the. English, the, the, the English subjects there, the, the, the colonists, reasserting the 1689 realities of the Bill of Rights. And that, of course, birthed um, 
uh, one of the freest nations uh, that the world has known in, in the, what became eventually the United States of, of America. So that was the effect of the Reformation. And those countries have been known for England, Canada, America, Australia, New Zealand. Those that have had this common law tradition um, have been seen as the freest nations in the world. Yeah. What's really interesting, isn't it, that in those free nations, we've been um, very shut down by COVID and very fearful. And I know that you you kind of opened this book around the cult of the expert mm -hmm. and what's happened. And, it, and it's been very interesting that the free nations have so absorbed the kind of the cult of the expert and the cult of and, and what's gone on around COVID. And it's interesting during this period when we were locked down um, in this in, in this nation, in, in Great Britain, that we saw some of the the, the hugest change changes socially. Um, in our culture that we've seen during the Queen's reign. I mean, there's a sense in which, um, you know, we, we've seen um, an end game situation um, it, it, during, during uh, the, the two years of uh, the COVID regulations, that through those COVID regulations, laws were introduced that really entirely reshaped the social structure going forward, coming out of COVID, COVID going forward. So, the Queen came to the throne and abortion was illegal. Yes. During this COVID period, we essentially get the tearing up of abortion law and mm -hmm. access to abortion um, because we're in an emergency situation by way of uh, pills by post via um, telemedical abortion, mm -hmm. telemedicine. Tele 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 uh, so like on a screen we're doing here, you also get the ripping up of marriage law. In, in that we then we go to no fault divorce, no fault divorce, and a huge push around um, during this whole period around making illegal so-called conversion therapy. So all of this is, has been happening during the during the, the during during the COVID during this COVID period. So I mean I think this idea of the cult of the expert that you developed very early in the book. Uh, well, do you want to talk about that, um, Joe? What? Why? Why is it a cult? What's wrong with experts? Aren't experts a good thing? Yeah. So, uh, yes, I, I focus early in the book on one of the the, the changes that's come about with de-Christianization that, that Andrea has just very uh, effectively described there, uh, is that uh, we once we lose our, our handle, our roots, because, because uh, you know, custom, tradition, an unwritten constitution in, in Britain has been so important. When people become disconnected with their history and with their roots uh, and de-Christianization takes place, people are all over the map. And uh, when uh, that happens uh, and we essentially have a change of gods, uh, instead of the word of God and, and the authority of God being recognized, and of course the unique place that the church then occupies in a Christian culture in giving prophetic witness and proposing, not imposing, but proposing to government what it should be doing. You know, the Anglican church had often been called the conscience of the nation. Uh, you need a set effectively a new priesthood. And uh, you can you can go back into the, the scripture and look at the in the Old Testament, you see the um, the ancient version of these experts um, you look at the Egyptian court, for example, and you see when Moses um, goes in with his staff, with Aaron, 
and uh, Pharaoh has his magicians and his advisors and so on. And you see them in Babylon surrounding the satraps. And it doesn't matter what they're called, the magi. Uh, there's always been in the pagan world the equivalent of uh, magicians, advisors, wise men, experts. When Daniel and his friends are taken into captivity into Babylon, he's placed in a school for the experts who will be the king's interpreters, uh, dreamers, advisors, and so on and so forth. Those who will interpret dreams uh, and and advise uh, the the king in terms of um, pagan notions, pagan ideology, pagan ideas, and of course Daniel immediately resists that and uh, uh, wants the test with respect to the food. He says, "No, I'm not going to eat that. Um, give us this diet." And and it's found that Daniel and his friends. Uh, supersede all of the competition in terms of their wisdom, their health, their strength, their insight, everything. That's that's the work that God does. So you see, this is not a new phenomena. It's a very ancient phenomena. Um, and in the modern world, what's tended to happen steadily with secularization is the scientist or the, 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 um, the, the expert in a given field, in an academic field, but especially in what we might call the natural sciences we've seen during COVID, you know, computer modelers, virologists, and so forth. People who have a very narrow expertise in a given area, and there's nothing wrong with expertise in a given area. Uh, it's uh, yeah. useful to, to any uh, government to be able to consult with people, uh, to do uh, broad community consultation and so on. Um, but what's developed with secularization, with this vacuum that's developed in the area of authority mm -hmm. uh, and religious authority, is it's been replaced by... Um, secular ideas uh, and a new intelligentsia, a new prophetic priestly class, a new anointed elite, actually. Uh, and they are an elite, but they're also seen as a kind of anointed elite. This is what uh, Thomas Sowell, I think, brilliantly deals with in his book on intellectuals and society. And uh, there is a sense in which we are to look to experts in a very narrow field uh, to give direction to the social order. Now, the notion that um, uh, that somebody who's got a high specialization, for example, in the field of computer modeling or uh, virology or even epidemiology is thereby competent and qualified to say how I'm going to worship God or how I'm going to uh, uh, deal with my family or whether I can be at the funeral of my, par at my parents or be at the wedding of my children. Or how they well, advise on policy which affects lots of other areas like economics and 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 business and religion and all these other precisely. things That's kind of point isn't it yeah they, they have a very narrow expertise and you know, they're saying everyone needs to bow down to my expertise because this is the most important expertise at the moment precisely right so it becomes a very reductionistic way of looking at everything and so you've got uh uh, and this, of course, was what the Greeks thought. The, the Greek idea was that you needed philosopher kings. You needed a kind yeah. of elite who would tell everybody else what to do. And actually, what's been proven true, I think, the last couple of years is that ordinary people armed with common sense <laughs> uh, who are engaged with real reality on the ground and not mm -hmm. in ivory towers of elites mm -hmm. uh, often have a better understanding because they're looking at the whole picture generally than uh, well providing they're not taken in by the fear-mongering that the government and the secular media and the manipulation but that was part of the expertise I mean, part of bringing some. in the psychologists and the psychiatrists yes to, uh, calling it nudging that the government used expert psychologists to try and yes. manipulate people through media 
into a place of fear. And so yeah. this whole thing now, you know, follow the science is what I deal with in the book. This kind of mantra that we are to be governed in the entirety of our lives by a cadre of elites who will sit around a table and tell our elected officials what they should do. And they fall yes. down before that and do it because they're terrified of contradicting some academy um, is a very, very dangerous place for society to be. We've never been there before and, and, and never before have we given such authority and such mm. power to such a but narrow and that, small um, people. You know, obviously, you know, but do you think that actually the cult of the expert has kind of been broken by COVID because they got the predictions so wrong, right? You know, in, in Britain, we opened up and they predicted, you know, what, half a million infections, whatever, and we never got there. You know, they got it so wrong. You know, but I'm that, not sure that those people noticed him. And I, I know, and I know what you mean. I know what you mean, Joe. That um, there's a sense in which the ordinary man and woman on the street have quite a bit of common sense, and, and there has been some resistance. But also, to be honest, not a lot. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, and um, and I've been very fascinated by uh, in watching the young. The, the, mm -hmm. the 20, 22, 24-year-olds, that sort of generation, um, perhaps just post-university, they are very, they've been very COVID conscious. They have been, they have followed that elite-driven uh, message that's gone out. Right. Uh, so I... I um, of course, they are the product of many years of, of indoctrination in government schools. And uh, we've lost, we are losing the irony of the cult of the expert is that the more we emphasize expertise in society, the more ignorant it seems people become uh, through the education system. We don't want independent critical thinkers, it seems. Uh, we want to push everybody into a very limited mold so well, that we all think the same. And I think what you're describing amongst the young is this lemming-like behavior well, manifests that we, we're losing the ability to think things through for ourselves. Because contradiction means that you um, immediately, you know, it, actually questioning the COVID discourse means that you want to kill your granny or something. You know, it's, yeah. that, that's immediately where you go. Um, well, or... I think that the, 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 Tim's right to the extent about the cult of the expert, to the extent that just as, uh, you know, Moses' staff, uh, when it became a serpent, consumed the, the, the serpents of the magicians, and just as... Uh, uh, Joseph rightly interpreted the dreams and Daniel rightly interpreted dreams and exposed the the uh, the poverty of the 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 cult of the expert. I think that actually the last two years have torn the mask off uh, the cult of the expert. I mean, probably al alongside the hypocrisy of civil government and things like Partygate. Um, yeah. But the the the, the yeah. reality is you've got well, that's, well, that's uh, a whole other aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah, you've got the, 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 the sort of myth of expertise has been has been woefully exposed, and yet yeah. people still want to plan on their uh, uh, on what kind of uh, on whether they should be driving a battery powered car, because we think we can predict you know the the, the climate of the planet um, with any degree of accuracy. So and that's dictating public policy as well. So you see, it's not just the one area; it's multiple areas in which we see increasingly well, without that are very faith, you see, without faith. Without the glorious message of the gospel, people can't see or are fearful. Um, yeah. And even the common sense don't know why they think this is wrong. Don't, don't know where they actually don't know where to turn in a society that is 
post-Christian or a society where where we don't we no longer understand what it is um, that the that the Queen swore to uphold, mm-hmm. where 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 those or what the Ten Commandments are or what Easter really means. Um, you know, it's gutted. It's hollow. Well, it's all it's all part of. I mean, I think somebody's commenting on a on one of these comments here that the Gregory Gardner on YouTube, the state becomes a surrogate provider That's and correct. people are to be provided for, even if it means a restriction on freedom rather than loss of security. And that there's, there's right, a lot of people... with their lives. I mean, I think the other point yeah. about all of this is that there's a sense in which if, if people, I know I've been talking about my, my global travels, but I, I was, all, I was struck in how, when I went to Hungary a number of years ago for the first time and looked at these villages in remote places, I thought, well, under communism, they would have just carried on the same. There was the church bells may even have rung out so long as the church wasn't disturbing the state, so long as the church complied, so long as the vi- the villagers would be free to just carry on. And there's a sense in yeah. which people learn to just carry on um, and not and so long as they don't disturb the state, so long as they're not a problem to the order, yes. everything can just go along. Yes. But that is actually a society without hope. Mm-hmm. Yes, but it's also, correct me if I'm wrong, Jay, but I think the point you're making here is that we replace God by the state. And yes. yeah, we make the state our God, and then the state right. tells we us. We allow what... the state to educate our children. We think the state is responsible for our health. Yes. Um, or the. And tells us what's right and wrong. Tells us, you know, how to govern our families and our churches and everything else. You know, yeah, I said at the beginning, church has to comply because, for instance, the church unless the church has to shut down. I'm now echoing. Sorry about that. Is that me? You're okay. Yeah. Um, The church has to close down because of a public health issue. The church will need to be silent around its teaching on human sexuality on on purity because if it continues in this way it's dangerous to a certain section of society the state mm. will begin to govern our children must be taught in a certain way in order to not discriminate in order to be tolerant that's where we end up yeah this is all part of um of the de-christianization of culture and therefore the paganizing of our political theory and our and our view of human government so the comment is actually important that was that was made. Um, the state, as I said at the beginning, will start to arrogate to itself. When God is set aside, the, the, we don't lose the need for an ultimate authority and an ultimate sovereign. Mm. So the state will seeks to replace God, as it always has in paganism, and arrogate to itself the the very um, the role and, and, and responsibility of God, and indeed the very characteristics of God. So. The state now essentially claims to be our provider to providence. It, it, it's cradle to grave security is therefore increasingly what people demand. And of course, that means slavery. It means going back to Egypt and the children of Israel when they they have the opportunity where you recall God led them out and he was going to give them his constitution. And um, uh, but uh, freedom means responsibility. And we don't want often now to, in a de-Christianized culture, we don't want to take responsibility. We want the state to take responsibility. And we want the state to provide us with safety and security. So instead of having a delimited state that functions as scripturally as a ministry of justice, pursuing a, a harmony of public legal interest, we now want the state to take the role of the family on and to take the resp- role and responsibility of the church. Yeah. And to take the take the the roles and responsibility for education, 
and mm. for all of our healthcare and medicine and all these different areas of life. So the, mm. which, of course, makes the state bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Then it becomes the largest employer. Mm-hmm. And then and, and then, of course, in a democratic society, you have the situation where if, if you've got all of those people that are now feeding off the state. Yes. They're going to vote for more statism. And the what happens, they are. And then, and then also, yeah. Let's not forget having to borrow money to fund the state. All the time. That's right. Look at so, the well, that's related, of course, because the massive yeah. debt load of Western economies yes. is related to the size of the state and its borrowing to yes. meet the demands of the people who say, "I we want we want cradle to grave security." It's the bread and circuses. Just that the Roman Empire was hollowed out in the same way. Yes. Yes. So. Joe, I I want to move on to um, my favourite chapter, I think, of your book, which is um, Globalist Utopia versus Biblical Nationhood. And I think this, you know, a really big thing that we see all around us is utopian dreams. Um, Yeah, we could call them pagan utopian dreams, whether it's economic dream, whether it's health dream, whether it's uh, environmental dream, whatever it's utopian ideas or equality, utopian ideas or equality, whatever. And you know, a great quote from the book, I think, uh, like, um, because man is a sinner, these utopian schemes must always be dystopian in their outcomes. I hope I've said that right. Must always be dystopian in their outcomes. I hope I said it clearly. I mean, um, so, Joe, just would you like to expand on that? Like, you know, because you know, a lot of Christians are taken in by utopian ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, utopianism is essentially the secular alternative to the kingdom of God. Uh, it's the it's the idea of the unity of human society, bringing uh, um, essentially happiness, peace, justice, uh, and a, which in utopianism is almost invariably defined as equality uh, yeah. in a very particular sense, that there's a leveling of all hierarchy and all structure. Uh, <clears throat> and that this will bring about the final state of man. Um, and in the book, I trace it to the, the genet- genetics of globalism to the Tower of Babel, right through the Greek philosophers to Immanuel Kant and his idea of perpetual peace. And this whole idea of globalism, that basically nation states are a problem uh, and that they are actually a hindrance to a global order of peace and unity of an egalitarian liberal world. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the I think one of the most important things to understand is that just as we've been saying that if you that uh, you, you remove God, you don't dispense with the, the fundamental doctrines of Scripture. You just actually transfer them elsewhere. Utopianism is a kind of religious necessity ha- yeah. uh, for the person who doesn't have Christ and doesn't have the gospel. How can we have perpetual peace? How can we yeah. have unity, peace, justice within a society um, yeah. when there's conflict? And conflicts of interest and and, yeah. and 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 struggle and so a on. A lot of these um, worldviews tend to have their own version of an apocalypse, which is we do everything wrong, and their own version of a kind of heaven where we do everything and we achieve an equality or an environmental Absolutely. dream or an economic dream or something like that. That it's kind of religious in nature, isn't it? Fundamentally, yeah. And uh, yeah, for the utopian, um, you know, basically hierarchical s- structures uh, are are sinful. Um, and, um, uh, and, and true freedom is when we emerge from things like the family and the church. Uh, and actually, for some, like in, within Marxism, uh, and, and usually today, their utopianism is neo-Marxist. 
Uh, even the state itself will finally disappear. Um, and uh, we won't need civil government uh, either. But on the road to utopia, uh, we need a heavy-handed uh, institution, a totalizing institution that will help bring this about. Um, and so in, in, um, I, in, in the book, what I try and do is describe the way in which utopianism, which is a term coined, I think, by uh, Sir Thomas More, in his book, Utopia, literally means no place, um, that it's kind of culminated today in, in what we today call globalism. Hmm. Uh, and a, a sort of transnational, you know, these sorts of terms like new world order, global governance, right side of history, uh, this sort of idea, you, 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 these conversations where you always feel like if you're talking about the importance of the nation state or freedom, you're, you're somehow on the wrong side of history or you're a sort of fascist. Uh, well, yeah. that's because you're, you're, you're resisting the movement towards a totally rational order, a totally egalitarian order where everything is leveled and thereby everything is equal uh, and everything is peace. So it's, it means the overturning, the destruction of God's order for man's order. And um, the, uh, the, the contrast that we have in the Bible for man's utopia, which is man's law, man's kingdom, in terms of his idea of radical egalitarianism, uh, is, of course, the, the overriding principle of the kingdom of God, and the importance of the nation state in God's economy. And um, you only have to look at very quickly, you only have to look at the nation of Israel to yeah. see what God's idea of a nation actually is. And yeah. you see how the Apostle Paul, even in his evangelism to the utopian Greeks in Acts chapter 17, points out that it was God who established the boundaries of the nations yes. so that they might reach out for him. Yeah, And uh, I actually conclude, I think, that, that chapter by pointing out that even in the eschaton, at the end, in the consummation of all things, there is a recognition yeah. by God um, of the importance of the nations, because this, yeah. the scriptures speak of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation yes. having been made a kingdom of priests unto God who mm. will reign forever. So... Yeah. The biblical idea is that there is actually a plethora, a diversity of nations mm. and cultures mm, mm, that have mm. equal right to exist yes. in terms of their own uh, customs and their own positivizing, their own application of God's law word. And they yes. must be left free to serve the kingdom of God and apply God's law word for themselves. And yeah. so must we. And that and provides a, a natural limit on human authority doesn't it because human authority doesn't extend beyond the, the the borders of the nation and therefore you know people can emigrate if they need to or or, or you know and move across nations and so on if they need to and so on so it provides a natural sort of you know check and balance on absolutely you know, how far totalitarianism can go you know not yes, beyond because the borders globalism is the extension of statism yes. totalitarian statism beyond the nation state to a global or transnational level and of course we've seen fundamentally people sense in britain of uh a, a recoiling actually from that because it's a it's a creational norm that that we that we should have families and nations that are distinct yes uh, a recoiling from that with brexit because of course yes. the whole idea is that you that the european union is this transnational body that take makes government further and further removed from localism yes. and the nation to a transnational group of elites 
yes. uh, in a in a European community. And of course, yes. the, you know that that whole project is is right now yeah. under threat. Well, the biblical that... idea of the nation uh, that's seen in Israel and then throughout Scripture, right through to the eschaton, I think is critically important. And it and it, yeah. it is it is a fundamental resistance to the utopian drive of our of our apostate Western culture today. Yeah, and I think you quote from Yoram Hazoni and his his Jewish philosopher, isn't he, who wrote a book, uh, The Virtue of Nationalism. Yes, and he, he says, I find it very helpful, you're either a nationalist or you're an imperialist. And yeah. that's true, isn't it? You, you either you either think people should have individual nations and they left themselves, or you think we should go and control all the nations in some way or other. And uh, that's either by political means like the EU or whatever or else. Can I just can I say with I mean with all of this you know yeah. Bartomeu has just asked so what are we going to do then what yeah. is the way forward yeah um you know and you know uh what is the way forward without looking back all the time I think sometimes that's what um when we are when we speak into the public space um day by day certainly through the work of Christian concern um people sometimes say well what are you trying you your reactionary aren't you or you want to go go backwards. Um, what is the way forward, Joe, with this thinking yeah. and understanding the times and, and this book, I think, really analysing, I think it's a very, so I think it's, it's I, I think in one way it's timeless, but there's a sense also which is written very much in this moment of history, um, and that's what I liked a lot about it, uh, in this very moment of history. What is the moment, what is the way forward from now, from, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, from, from, you know, 2022. So I certainly hope people will um, will uh, get the book and actually uh, read the the positive um, delineation of what I think we have to do going forward. Now, it, it isn't a waste of time looking back because we always have to look back to go forward. Think of it as uh, checking your rearview mirror before you pull out into into the lane. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, if we are if we don't look at history and learn the lessons of history in a certain sense, especially in a nation like England, uh, where we're all from, uh, at least um, the uh, we have this long and, and rich uh, history and we are who we were, uh, who we are is who we were. So we need to look back to be resourced to go forward. Now, how do we move forward? And I think part of that is that um, having looked back and, 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 gotten perspective because that's what looking back does it gives us perspective yeah. we can yeah. actually then recognize that just because things are as they are now doesn't mean they should be that way or that they will be that way going forward yeah and I've, i mentioned just a couple of things um politically like things like um the the shock for many people of, of brexit as just a small indication uh and that was a seismic shift of the fact that um, when we think things are on an almost necessary, unstoppable trajectory, suddenly something else happens uh, mm. and um, there's a there's a significant change. Mm. So I think the first thing is to to remember or the second thing I should say is to is to remember that. Uh, civil government is only one form of government in human society. And as we think about the ruler of kings and that's drawn from Revelation one five, Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Yeah. We have to start in our own context, in our own setting, in over the areas where, where we exercise some degree of authority. So where we are today didn't come about overnight. It, it was it's been a it's been a process sure. an outworking, steady outworking of false principles, of mistaken principles. 
sure. in this de-Christianization process. Mm. So we have to begin by getting at recovering our sense of sphere sovereignty. I really do believe that with respect to government and politics. Yeah. And we have to, we need to recover that in the church. And it's yeah. almost non-existent in the churches. And we need it in the family. Yeah. And I think a critical area that we have to look at if we're going to make headway in the coming decades is the area of education. Yeah. Because we've handed the vast majority the vast majority of education over to the state for our children to be indoctrinated in secular yeah. humanistic and pagan ideals. We're not going to make headway if look if we give our kids to Caesar, yeah. don't be surprised if they come back as Romans. And so uh if we have to think through what are we doing with education? Then I think we have to think through um the our engagement at the the civic level. To what degree do we as Christians now even think seriously about these issues and how much do we just simply fall in with the status quo? So what yeah. happens is organizations like Christian Concern end up uh, being like uh, David on the battlefield against Goliath. Um, and of course, God does bring down giants and, 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 he, and by God's grace, he has done. But we're also a bit like uh, somebody stood in front of a dam that's, that's, uh, and the dam is bursting holes or, mm -hmm. or, or, or a boat that's springing leaks. And we're trying to stick our fingers into these various holes. And every time we do so, another one starts over here. So mm -hmm. Christian Concerns efforts are a rearguard effort. They're absolutely necessary to try and preserve remaining freedoms. But we also need an, a, a, a long-term strategy for the recovery of these principles. Yeah. And it starts in our family and in our churches. You know, one of the biggest things, you know, I just read it again today, I think, in the Daily Telegraph. Uh, uh, Andrea has mentioned... Um, the, the problem with the conversion therapy ban, flip-flopping, yeah. and the U-turns there. Well, what's one of the fundamental problems we have there? It, actually, the government's own research showed that no such ban was necessary. Yeah, There was no evidence for its necessity at all. But what happens? Two prominent churchmen, <laughs> the Archbishop, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, and Steve Chalk, the evangelical, former evangelical apostate, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. uh, are writing to government as ostensible Christians to say, no, 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 we need to enforce this pagan idea on the culture. So, so look, it, there the problem is right in the church. So often we think, look, we've got to change. How, who do we need as prime minister? How do we organize politically? Now, don't get me wrong. We should organize politically. Um, we should be at work grass, at the grassroots level. Yeah. But we have to do have this battle in the family and in the church and yeah. in the school where we all have a degree of influence and control in the immediate, because that is what sure. will move the goalposts over the long term. Sure. Joe, I think what I found helpful, I think in chapter three, you do outline five ways that we can engage and things that we should do. And, and they're things like um, rejecting the relativism of pagan secularization, um, resisting the turn to privatize our faith which is part of the secularization, um, isn't it? And applying the gospel in concrete ways to culture. Andrea, I might want to talk about how that's happening in Nepal. Um, and affirming Christ's government over all things. And, you know, it's kind of summarizing what you've just been saying. But anyway, you know, you have got some concrete um, recommendations for what we should do there um, in, in chapter three. So, you know, I do encourage people to read it. Andrea, do you have any, any final comments? Because I think we're running out of time just here. I think the final comment is really just pick up this book. Yeah. Uh, read it, share it, and let's um, and um, 
you know, Jesus Christ is king. One day every knee shall bow. And Joe's, Joe's absolutely right. We, uh, it, and, and until he returns, we need to work. We, we need to be working right now in our fam where we can, in our families. We need to be raising up generations of children that are not indoctrinated by the state, but rather that are uh, told about the love and saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and yep. raised in his ways. Yeah. Joe, any final comments from you? Yeah, especially to those who might be downcast or discouraged. You know, um, one of the things that I always try to do in my my writing and my work is point people to what Andrea just mentioned, that uh, Christ will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. That is the, the, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The prophet says of the increase of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end of the increase of his government. Uh, I often sign off on my uh, letters like that for the increase of his government. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the well, great well, thing about no, just think about that. Just think about that. Yeah. Wouldn't that wouldn't that be amazing for the West? And wouldn't that be amazing for the East? Yeah, And it's going to happen. It is a it is a, a kingdom certainty that the kingdom of God is among us. Uh, Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you. We preach the gospel of the kingdom. And history does this, and it goes through these different phases. And we're we're in one of those valleys right now, um, and and there, it's a moment of challenge. But every moment of challenge is a moment of glorious opportunity. Because if you want to be a person of significance, you want to be a history maker. You've been born in the right moment. What an opportunity to serve the cause of Christ and actually to be part of a new reformation in the West for the next possible five hundred years. Of human history whatever your eschatology may, may be well, I and what i love is this new generation coming through because Absolutely. the new generation coming through are witnesses how hopeless secular liberal humanism Absolutely. is how hopeless the so-called freedom is how it it's sold so short on all its promises this yeah. freedom in fact means misery it's and, it's not it's not brought freedom at all and so they they are really radical they they, they, they hunger for justice mm -hmm. they hunger for righteousness and that of course true justice and true righteousness and true hope and true freedom is only found in the king of kings and lord of lords that's right and that's why and that's why it's excited and when we see exciting when we see this new generation of christians coming through they want to tell their friends just that yeah just so just imagine that revolution and remember that the, 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 the pagan, humanistic, secular worldview and ideology has the seeds of its own destruction built into it. That's why we're seeing our society coming apart now. And mm -hmm. that is a form of the judgment of God. And that's to be welcomed because when God judges something, he's sweeping it aside to replace it with something else. So the mm -hmm. question is, are we going to be ready to be faithful in our mm -hmm. own time, like men of Issachar, men and women of Issachar, to uh, apply the fullness of the gospel and the word of God in a crumbling culture so that hope and life and truth can come forth for our children and our grandchildren. And that's what that's what it's about. It's what, what Martin Luther, I think, was, whether it's apocryphal or not, I don't know, was once asked, what would you do if you thought the earth was coming to end tomorrow? He'd say, plant a tree. So let's go and plant gospel trees. Great. Well, listen, um, thank you so much, Joe. And um, a lot of wisdom there, a lot of food for thought, a lot of in-depth thinking and research that has gone into this book. Really appreciate it. Um, thank you, Andrea, as well, for joining us. Thank you for 
watching. And I hope that conversation has given you a flavour for what the book is about and some of the depth of wisdom and and great content that there is in it and a ways it's sort of challenging a lot of thinking in churches uh, that is going on today. Um, so do get hold of the book. Um, it's available on bookshops, it's available on Kindle as well, um, and uh, and read it and recommend it. And uh, and I think you'll find it really helpful um, thinking about these various issues. So thank you very much uh, for watching and uh, look forward to catching up with you all again soon. Thank you.